Well, good morning again. It's good to see you here. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we are in a, uh, a sermon series we started back in late August that will take us through the end of November entitled The People of God. Uh, we've made it to the book of Daniel this morning. We'll be in Daniel 2 in just a moment. Uh, so we're journeying through the Old Testament looking at these prominent figures of the Old Testament and how God is telling one beautiful redemptive story through all their stories. I was thinking of uh, another way to think of the Bible this week. Uh, if you're one who enjoys good art, appreciates art, um, if you've ever been up close to a beautiful work of art, a, a canvas with an oil painting and really studied the brush strokes, and as you're looking at just the simple stroke of a brush, um, right, just looking at that brush stroke doesn't really make a lot of sense, right, until you begin to step back and realize, oh, this is part of a hand, right? This, and so there must be a body that goes, you take a step back, oh, there's a, there's a person here. And then you take a step back and go, oh, this is a, a lady and she's holding a cup. And, and, and the further you step back, the more that not just the entire painting makes sense, but the more that individual brushstroke makes sense, right? And so I think we're seeing that same thing is true about the word of God, that each of these stories, each of these characters is simply just a brushstroke. And this beautiful, redemptive painting uh, that God is painting through human history. And then that then causes us to think about our own lives, your life, my life, as small little brushstrokes in this same redemptive painting. And so we've made it quite a ways through the, the Old Testament. I want to give you um, just some timeline to help you kind of get your bearings on where we've come. We started in the beginning with Adam. Uh, from there, we went to Noah, and then we got to Abraham on the third Sunday. Um, I'm going to give you some dates. Some of these are estimates. Some of these are really, really close. But around uh, Abraham, God's promise to him happened around 2000 BC, which is about 4,000 years ago. Then after Abraham, of course, we had story of the Exodus where Moses leads God's people to exit out of Egypt, uh, to journey through the wilderness to the promised land. That was somewhere around 1250 to 1450 BC. Uh, then last week we were looking at Ruth and, uh, and her story, the story of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz took place during the period of Judges, which was before the kings. Uh, and so this was uh, somewhere between 1400 BC and 1000 BC, because we know that uh, Saul is the first king. And by the time we get to David, we're at 1010 BC. Uh, David will reign as king uh, all the way till 971 BC when his son, where his son Solomon takes over. Uh, Solomon's going to establish the temple in Jerusalem for God. Remember, that's what David wanted to do. God, I want to build you a house. God responds to David with, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to build you a house. What's well, David's son, Solomon, who steps onto the throne of King of Israel to build the first temple in Jerusalem. And then after Solomon, things go incredibly wrong. Uh, the kingdom divides. After Solomon's reign, uh, you have Rehoboam, Re Rehoboam who takes over uh, part of the nation of Israel. The, the tribe of Judah separates away. Uh, we, could even, we saw this already with David. When David first became appointed king, he was just king of Judah. It was years later before it was united into one monarchy. Well, now the nation splits again. Uh, Rehoboam is the king of Judah in the south, and then the northern kingdom of Israel is ruled by Jeroboam. And this lasts for centuries. 
Uh, somewhere around 720 BC, the Assyrians take over the northern kingdom of Israel. And then around 600 or so BC, um, it's the Babylonians who then invade and take over the southern kingdom of Judah. So this is going to lead us all the way up to Daniel. So by the time we get to Daniel, uh, the Babylonians have taken over Jerusalem, but they're not fully occupying it yet. Their first kind of strategy was to extract from among the kingdom of Judah some of the top individuals, uh, some young teenage guys, and bring them back into Babylon to indoctrinate them in the Babylonian ways. And so this leads us to Daniel and then his three boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who, which are the Babylonian names. Uh, Daniel's Babylonian name is Belteshazzar. Say that really fast, three or four times. And so you've got Daniel and his three boys there in uh, Babylonian captivity being indoctrinated, yet instead of being indoctrinated, they stand up for their God in some incredible ways. And so in Daniel chapter two, here's the scene. King Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of uh, the Babylonians, and uh, he thought a lot of himself. Matter of fact, his image was a big deal to him. It was really important for him to establish uh, his image in his kingdom, and so he had these statues built, these images of him, and uh, he took it one step further and said, anytime you hear the music of worship, you're to stop what you're doing, bow down immediately, and worship me. So he thought a lot of himself. Well, problem is he begins to have this dream. It's a real disturbing dream. It begins to kind of awaken some things in him and to frighten him some. And so he calls on all of the, the wise men of Babylon to see if they can interpret the dream for him and to make sense of it. And so he calls on the enchanters, the magicians, you know, the, the wise men, right? He calls them all in and says, listen, here's the dream. Tell me what it means. And nobody could tell him what it means. And he was so disturbed and distraught that he issued a death sentence on all who failed to interpret the dream. This is a big deal. Now, uh, in Daniel chapter two, Daniel, remember, he's in exile. He's from Judah. He's there uh, and he hears that the king is gonna put to death all these people who couldn't interpret the dream. And he's like, hey, 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 can I have a shot? Let me step in. And this is where we're gonna pick up the story now in Daniel chapter two, starting at verse 24. So we've got a character by the name of Arioch. Arioch was the one that Nebuchadnezzar told to go put these people to death. And so in verse 24, we read, therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. Now, that's a pretty risky move, isn't it? Right, in order to keep these folks from getting their heads chopped off, Daniel said, hey, take me before the king, right? I'll interpret the dream for him and hopefully spare the lives of these individuals. But, but what was Daniel risking? Everything, right? Because he wasn't even Babylonian. He was a foreigner. And he says, listen, take me before the king. We're getting to see this kind of this beautiful kind of snapshot of Daniel's faith, right? Why? Because he believed and trusted in his God as he goes before this king who could easily have his head chopped off. And so verse 25, 
Then Ariok brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? (coughs) Moment of truth, Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king, oh, to King Nebuchadnezzar, what will be in the latter days. So before Daniel really even begins to interpret the dream, he's answering his question, yes, my God can interpret your dream. And matter of fact, the interpretation of your dream has to do with what is to come. So before we even go any further, I just want you to know that my, my God is making known to you through this dream what is to come. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than any all or more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. And what I love about this moment is, 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 you know, is Daniel is being brought before the king and the king is saying, finally, are, are you gonna be able to do this for me? Before Daniel does anything, he wants the king to understand who it is who does things, who it is who reveals, right? So in a way, Daniel's kind of pointing to the, the big picture, not the brushstroke and saying, listen, I'm just a brushstroke in this painting. But the one who's painting, right? The, the guy who's standing over redemptive history can absolutely make known the interpretation of your dream. And so from the beginning of this encounter, Daniel wants the king to know, if anything is revealed to you, it won't be because of me, it'll be because of him. So not only is Daniel kind of risking his own life here, he's intentionally standing up for his God. Now, why is this such a big deal? Well, because in the Babylonian empire, guess who the God of all gods was? The king right? The king, he was the one, right? He was the one to stand as the God of all gods, the Lord of all lords, the ruler of all rulers, that everybody would bow down to him, pay homage to him, and exalt him. And so by Daniel's very words, he is saying, I know somebody bigger than you. I know somebody more powerful than you. You can't figure this out. None of your wise men can figure this out. And before I help you figure it out, realize it's not me who's gonna figure this out. It's the God who is bigger than you. The God of all gods. And so from here in verse 31, Daniel begins to unlock this dream. Verse 31, he says to the king, you saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you. 
and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of silver, or excuse me, of, was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, before we get into the interpretation of the dream, let's just talk about the dream because there's a lot going on here. Now, remember, we've got King Nebuchadnezzar here who sees himself as deity. Matter of fact, he takes it so far as to create statues of himself, disperse them around his kingdom that people would bow down to these statues and, and indirectly worship him through worshiping these statues. And now he's confronted with what? A statue. It's not him. Right, the statue that looks like a man, there's texture and layers to uh, this statue, but before he even knows what these things represent, the scripture says he's frightened, right? It's exceedingly bright and it's frightening to him. Well, it's not just a dream of objects, it's a dream with a narrative story because not only is there a statue, there's a stone in the dream. And it's described this way, this way. It's a stone that's carved out of a, of a mountain, but not by human hands. So, so, right, so the, the idea is, I, I, I don't know fully who carved that stone, but I can tell a human didn't carve it. Something's different about this stone. And then the stone does something, doesn't it? It crushes into the statue and brings it to nothing. And it begins to crumble until it turns into dust. And then it's blown away in the wind. And so from here now, verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. So as Daniel begins to unpack the layers, he begins to explain to the king the different layers of this statue represent different kingdoms. And we've talked about this before, how the prophecies in the scriptures oftentimes have real-time relevancy and also look forward to the latter days. And this is more than likely one of those imageries. But what we get from here is this description of what would happen in this geographical area over the course of the next 600 years. As King Nebuchadnezzar ruled over Babylon, right? His, David's gonna tell him, hey, your kingdom, that's the gold head. But after you, there's another kingdom coming more than likely, just from history, we would believe this to be the Medi-Persians who uh, ruled and reigned from 539 to 531. That's King Darius and King Cyrus. Then it was Alexander the Great who conquered Darius and established Greece in 331 all the way up till 63 when the Romans took over. And then we know the Romans partially occupied even Jerusalem at the time of Christ. And so more than likely, there's part of the imagery. These kingdoms, starting with you, Nebuchadnezzar, at the head is the gold and below you are these different layers to that kingdom. But here's the main point. None of these kingdoms will stand once the stone comes that is cut out of the mountain, not hewn of human hands, right? And it crushes into, right, this statue. Whatever these kingdoms are, they will come crumbling 
right? And come to an end and be like dust in the wind, forgotten when the stone comes. But that's not the end of the dream. The stone that comes and topples the statue, what happens to it? It becomes like a great mountain. This is really cool imagery. And so Daniel starts unlocking this for the king and just telling him honestly, what's happening? Your kingdom's gonna come to an end. The kingdom after you's gonna come to an end. The kingdom after that's gonna come to an end. There is a stone coming that's gonna bring all human kingdoms to what? To nothing, to nothing. And that stone is gonna become a great mountain, like a great kingdom. Now, helpful is, 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 the, is to understand that from the beginning, you as, and I as people were created to be image bearers. That's embedded in who we are. So when God established his kingdom here in Eden and he put Adam and Eve in the garden to be image bearers, they were living statues that when you looked at them, you would see a reflection of who he is, right? And so you and I are the image bearers of our king, right? So we don't have to build statues or put pictures on the wall. You and I are meant to what? To bear the image of our king. The problem is because of the fall, that image gets distorted. So when people look at me, they don't see a true reflection of the king apart from Christ working in me, right? Apart from God's Holy Spirit working in me, they see a distorted image of him. As you look to me and go, I wanna know what love looks like. If you see a pure example of love coming out of my life, what you're seeing is the love of Christ, not the love of Jason, because that's distorted, right? But that's what Christ does. He comes and he redeems what has been lost and restores you and I as image bearers in his kingdom. And here what we see is not only is uh, the, the kingdom of man coming to an end, but in this dream is, is, listen, the images you've created will come to an end too. Why? Because as human beings, we were not meant to be kings. We were meant to be image bearers. And God is our king. And any efforts to establish our own kingdoms lead only to what? To destruction. They fail us. Whether you're talking about a, a civilization we're talking about your home. Any effort to establish your own kingdom will lead to destruction and will come to an end. And this stone, right, will come and bring all kingdoms to nothing. So in verse 44, Daniel continues. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. And then he adds this statement. This dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. You believing me or not believing me does not change what is true. I'm telling you the truth. My God, the God of all gods has revealed this, not just to me, but to you. And now I'm wondering, whoa, what is his response gonna be to this? <laughs> we got the interpretation. But it wasn't a pretty one for King Nebuchadnezzar, was it? It's not. Now, about this same time, uh, we get the prophet Isaiah. I want you to hear just a, just a snippet of one of 
one of the prophecies that Isaiah lays out of what is to come. Listen to this in Isaiah chapter two, verse two. It shall come to pass in the latter days. That phrase means that the prophet's looking forward, right? It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Does that sound familiar at all? Sounds like Isaiah is seeing the same thing Daniel's seeing. And shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And the prophet Isaiah is describing what, what, what appears to be this mountain rising up above all their mountains and calling all the nations to itself. Isaiah is seeing the same thing Daniel's seeing. And I think he's, he's looking all the way to, to what we find in Revelation when we see the people of God, the saints gathering to the holy mountain in the presence of the Lord finally and forever. Well, the New Testament is gonna give us some insight into this stone. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is talking. In verse 42, he says to them, he's speaking to Pharisees, he says, have you never read in the scriptures? Which is a kind of a sarcastic thing to say to experts in the scriptures. <laughs> I see you as a good Christian with your Bible in your hand. Have you ever opened it and read it? It's kind of what he's saying. Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be what? Broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will what? Crush him. Make no mistake, Jesus is the stone in King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He describes himself here as the stone that the builders rejected. He was discarded, yet this stone that was rejected became what? The cornerstone, the most important stone, the strongest stone, the stone that holds the whole thing together. Hebrews chapter one, verse eight says this of Jesus, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. This is the Father speaking about the Son, right? That your kingdom shall be established. Your scepter, your rule, your reign will be what? Forever. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 20, 28, therefore, let us be grateful. The Bible's telling us how we should respond to what we're reading. Let us not be like King Nebuchadnezzar, frightened. Let us be what? Grateful. Why? For receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Apart from Christ, you don't know a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Apart from Christ, there is no human being who has experienced a kingdom that cannot be toppled or shaken. Look at human history, right? This, this prophecy isn't just about the, the following kingdoms after King Nebuchadnezzar, but this is speaking of all kingdoms of all times. No kingdom shall stand but the kingdom of Christ. And thus let us offer, the rest of Hebrews 12, 28, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. 
gratefulness, reverence, and awe. Jesus is the stone that will bring all earthly kingdoms to nothing, to establish the kingdom of God finally and forever. He's the king of the coming, of the coming kingdom, and you and I as Christ's followers are citizens in that kingdom. Now, just, just have a moment of honesty here, right? So I don't know, at least in my 43 years of experience, my brushstroke on the redemptive painting is like little bitty, right? But I don't know that as a nation we've been, we've experienced this type, this, this extreme polarization before, right? So like we've always had um, polarization, politically speaking, socially speaking, religious speaking, but we're at a point now where houses are being divided, right? Over just politics and who you're voting for, right? And so I think there was something, I don't know that they fully understood why or how valuable this was, but there's something really wise in the way our nation was established, separating church and state, religion from politics. And, and it's not just good pragmatic advice to keep us from muddying the water, right? But there's, there's a sense of value there saying actually one is more important than the other, right? Because the moment we start mixing religion and politics, we begin to dilute our faith into putting our hope in what? In man. Like, listen, if you, like, I'm just thinking about the next 12 months, like politically speaking, there is no telling what's gonna unfold, right? I mean, it's just like a reality show waiting to happen. However, if you approach the next election, hanging your hat and your hope on the next candidate that you vote for to fix the country and heal our nation, you're hanging your hat on the wrong thing. There isn't a candidate who can do that, okay? Now, I'm not saying put your head in the sand and, and don't be involved. Be involved, but have things in the right order, right? You are first, as a Christ follower, a citizen of an eternal kingdom. Your vote here in this nation is a temporary vote. It has very little impact on eternity, right? You are citizens of a forever kingdom. Sorry, I could ride that soapbox for a while. Let's let it alone. All right. No, I can't. So, I mean, let's just be honest. Let's make it practical. The moment I let who I'm voting for, for office, divide me from you or divide my home, I've said that's more important than my relationship with you. Right. You with me? That's where it gets upside down. And so this, this, this is big talk, kingdom forever, but this is real on the ground truth. And so now we go back and we say, oh, poor Daniel, we left him hanging. <laughs> What's the king gonna do now? And so we go back to chapter two of Daniel, verse 46 and we get King Nebuchadnezzar's response. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. This is all about Daniel. He's blown away by Daniel, but it doesn't stop there. Because remember what Daniel told him? Hey, before I tell you what this dream means, you need to understand, it's not me. Look at what he's, verse 47. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. And a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. King Nebuchadnezzar, the one who, who commanded worship, right? Who exalted 
himself has now done what? He's bowed down in worship of the one true God and he's exalting Daniel's God. What a powerful moment. Now, here's my question. I'm less concerned with how long this is gonna last for him and I'm more concerned with your response. Who's the king who sits on the throne of your heart? Who's the king who sits on the throne of your household? I'm not asking what t-shirt you wore in the church today or what bumper sticker you have on your car. I'm, I'm asking who sits on the throne, right? Because if Jesus is our king, right, there is, a, there is this, this sense of paying homage and submission and right, this grateful authority over our lives. And there can't be an authority over our lives and there not be some indication of that, right? So if we were to poll your children and say, who's the king who sits on the throne of your household? or your neighbors, or your good friends, like, right, who is your king? Because regardless of, like, your political affiliation, you know who most often sits on the throne of our hearts if it's not Jesus? Me. We're a whole lot more like King Nebuchadnezzar than we want to admit. And we like it when people around us bow down and pay homage to us, don't we? And they carry out our plans, they push our agendas, they do things the way we want things to be done. Church, listen, you got a better king. His name's Jesus. You know, there was, a, there was a movement when I was young in the faith, and it was this movement that mistakenly separated the idea of Savior and Lord. Some of you know what I'm talking about, and it was the idea was, if you want to become a Christian, you walk the aisle, you accept Jesus in your heart as your Savior, then someday later on, when you really get serious about your faith, you make him your Lord. Listen, it's not the gospel. Amen. Jesus is Lord and King. Amen. He doesn't come to be your Savior hoping that one day you'll bow your life before him. Your King wore a crown of thorns and went to the cross to die for you. And in that, right, he becomes your savior, but he's still your king. And so I just wanna leave you with this question today. Who is the king who resides over your heart? Is Jesus your king? Well, how do you know? Well, Hebrews 12, 28 says, here's how we know. Are our hearts grateful? Are our hearts bowed down in worship and reverence and awe of King Jesus? Because if not, right, somebody else must be king. I want to leave you with that today. And I want to say, too, if you've come here today and you're not a Christian, listen, we get excited about talking about Jesus because he's done this supernatural work in our hearts. And we talk about submitting to him as king. Like, that's a joyful thing. And, and that might catch you off guard because in the rest of the world, there's not another example of a joyful submission to leadership because there's no other king worthy of sitting on the throne of your hearts. And so I wanna tell you, this King Jesus, he has died for you. He laid his life down for you. He loves you. And by believing in him and stepping towards him in faith, not only does he forgive your sins, he establishes your identity as his it's his, perfectly righteous. And he gives you this eternal destiny as a citizen in his kingdom. And all of that can take place today before you leave. Before you leave here today to take that step of faith and trust in Jesus. So I'm gonna pray for us now and our worship team's gonna come up and we're gonna respond. And 
I just want to encourage you to think about your own citizenship and who your king is as we bow to pray. Father, we do bow before you now. God, in awe and in reverence, God, with grateful hearts, you truly are king. And Father, every example that we find in this world, whether it's what's happening in our country right now, or we look at other civilizations in human history, all we see is failure and destruction from human beings trying to be king. And why, oh God, would we think anything different would happen in our own hearts? Father, this morning we need to be dethroned. King Jesus, you and you alone are worthy to sit on the throne of our hearts. We exalt you. We worship you. We bow down before you. And we pray your Holy Spirit would move through this room. God, convict us of our sin. God, heal us when we're broken. God, bring hope where there's despair. Father, do a supernatural work in us today. We pray all these things in the name, above all names, Jesus.